Starting a new series this morning, and it's in one of my favorite books in the Bible, the book of Daniel. We'll begin there in chapter 1 this morning. Uh, we'll go to some other places in the book as well, but our reading is over in Daniel chapter 1. And we're going to read the first eight verses of the book. And if you're physically able, would you please stand for the reading this morning as we look there the book of Daniel. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning of the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the princes of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart, that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And I want you to notice, uh, as we get into this message today, how these four young men stood for the glory of God. We begin today with the topic of purpose from Daniel chapter 1 at verse number 8. Father, would you bless now... In our message this morning, I pray that you would uh, give us direction and uh, be our vision as we look at, at this passage that we might be able to open our hearts to your word and what you have for us, that we might be able to use the word of God to stand in these days in which we live as Daniel stood in the pagan heathen kingdom in which he lived. Guide us and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Would you listen to this song? Sing on that beautiful shore. Come 
Amen. Thank you, man, for that. Appreciate that song. And forgot a couple of announcements. Uh, I mentioned the four-wheeler raffle, but I forgot to mention that our quilting club here from the church will also be out there selling their raffle tickets for their quilt. And it's a beautiful piece that they've done. And so make sure you remember that. And also uh, failed to announce there's a board meeting tonight at 630 right after our parenting series. Okay. Well, here we go into Daniel chapter one. And I think most people are somewhat familiar this, with this book. But if you're not, we're going to give you a little bit of a background here. The book of Daniel begins in 607 B.C. And uh, to give you a little context, that's the same year as the conquest of Jerusalem, when Jerusalem was ransacked, and we read a little bit about it at the beginning of the book there. If you notice, by way of introduction, this ransacking of Jerusalem was part of God's plan. If you look at this in verse 2, it says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So Jehoiakim was taken, and Jerusalem was ransacked as part of God's plan to punish or to discipline or to chasten his children. God had already assured the prophet Jeremiah that if his people would not repent of their repeated idolatry, that they would go into captivity for 70 years. And uh, what's even more remarkable, just kind of an off note on this, Isaiah prophesied that they would come out of captivity and go back to rebuild the temple led by a king named Cyrus who wouldn't be born for another 150 years. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Just no matter how you slice it, that's cool. Uh, they were going to go into captivity for 70 years. So, uh, we read this in verse 2. But, you know, the Lord allowed Nebuchadnezzar to take Jehoiakim captive. Jehoiakim was a rebellious king who would not follow God's plan and would not listen to Jeremiah, would not listen to any of the prophets. But now the pagan king also did some things that were not sanctioned by God. He did some things of his own volition, where he, he took the vessels from the temple and brought them back to Shinar and placed them in the house of his false gods. And that's going to come into play later in the book in, in Daniel chapter 5, when his grandson takes those vessels and begins to use them for a party. And so you can read that on your own. But, but during this time of upheaval, a large number of people were taken captive from the tribe of Judah. All the king's family were taken. All the princes were taken. And Nebuchadnezzar also instructed his master of eunuchs to bring along some teenage young men that met certain conditions so that they could one day work in his court as wise men. And while King Nebuchadnezzar was looking for skillful and intelligent young men to stand in his palace. At the same time, God was looking for some valiant soldiers that would stand for his glory. And they both found what they wanted in these four guys. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Later to be known as Belteshazzar or Daniel. We kind of know him as Daniel. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's interesting in my spell check as I was typing those names out. Um, the the uh, Chaldean names for all four of the guys, uh, three of the Chaldean names are common where they're actually spelled correctly in spell check. You don't even have to worry about it. And, uh, but Daniel was, was kind of given his Jewish name. Okay, We don't really know him as Belteshazzar, 
But we do know the other three guys as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, who hasn't heard of them? So we're going to talk a little bit about them this morning, but we're mostly talking about Daniel, and we're talking about the drive and passion that was seen in the lives of these young men. Because they weren't comfortable with the status quo. They weren't willing to just go along to get along. They weren't deadbeats in the kingdom. They were all-stars. And yet God used them for a masterful way in his glory here in the, the pagan heathen kingdom of Babylon. And so we get into the text a little bit. And I want to start this morning by talking about evident parenting. Evident parenting. Although we know the names of all four of these fellows, the one we know the most about is Daniel. And there are some things that we can discern about his life, including the level of parenting that he had received up to the point of his captivity. And by the way, as I announced, we're starting a four-week parenting series tonight at 5.30 using a great new study from Dr. Paul Chappell called Making Home Work. And I'm going to be teaching all of the sessions. We'll provide you with some summary notes as well. And if you're a grandparent or a parent, uh, or you're going to be one of those someday, you will benefit from these sessions, and, and I really do hope you can come. Here in Daniel's life, we find some things that came together to develop him into the man of God that he was designed to be in the first place. And when you look at Daniel's life, he was arguably the most gifted teenager that we find anywhere in the Bible. Now, I know some of you are already processing that. You're like, what about Joseph? Yeah, he's pretty gifted too. What about David? Yeah, he's pretty gifted too. What about Timothy? You guys are, you can know, know the whole list. Way to go. You guys are working hard out there. You got some brain power in the audience. <laughs> Telepathy going. And, but Daniel, you could argue that he was the most gifted. Most commentators believe that he was as young as 14 years old when he was transported from Judah to Babylon, right? Now, first of all, let's think of it this way. Are there any young people today in here who are 14? All right, Faith, stand up, Faith. We're going to pick on you. <laughs> Faith is 14, right? Now, I know that her parents would not like her to be captured and taken to Babylon. Okay, and I know that Daniel's parents didn't like that either. Uh, Let's see, Xavier, how old are you? 13, so he's close, right? He's close. We've got some 15-year-olds. Natalie, you're 15? Okay, Autumn's 15. So <laughs> she, she's bold throwing that out there, right there. We've got another one back here. Oh, Malachi, how old are you? He's 14. He is the perfect type. Stand up, Malachi. There he is, right there. 14-year-old boy, right there. That's what they look like, Okay. <laughs> Okay, you may be seeing it. Now, you mothers, you know from their shoes and their sweaty clothes what they also smell like and how much they eat. And I'm telling you what, it's, it's crazy stuff. We've had two of them who've gone through that. And uh, goodness, I don't really want to wind the clock back and have to go through it again. But they're, they're 14. And uh, most likely that was his age as, as he's taken from his home that he's always known in Judah and taken hundreds of miles away to Babylon. And I want you to think of him as he shows up in this impressive ancient city. It has massive walls, 
In fact, the walls are so big, archaeologists say that the walls of Babylon were 60 feet thick. They used to raise chariots on top of the wall, 10 chariots wide. And if you fell off, then you lost <laughs> in more ways than one. Uh, massive walls. They had, of course, the hanging gardens. They had modern buildings, much more modern than Judah had at the time. They had libraries, and they had all sorts of things that there would not have been in his culture. And I'm sure that Daniel, who seems to have been well-educated, must have been excited at the many things in his new environment. It's got to be like a kid from Parma. Okay? Just uh, not picking on Parma. Any Parma people out there today? Or they, the Parma people are all gone today. They knew I was going to speak on this. So uh, think of a, a kid from Parma who's never been outside of Canyon County all of his life. And all of a sudden, when he's 14 years old, his parents take him on a trip to Las Vegas. Okay? And they get in the car here in Parma at night, and they drive all night south, 10, 11 hours, and they come into Las Vegas in the morning light, and he sees a big city for the first time. And, uh, you know, Babylon is kind of like Las Vegas because they're both guided by false religion. I remember uh, this is Cody, our son Cody wasn't 14, but I think he was 12 or 13. And uh, he had just gone to a whole week of, of camp in Colorado, Bible camp, summer get right with God, be dedicated to God camp. And we, because we uh, had a condo down by Las Vegas, we decided to do our vacation there because we could get a condo for like pennies because it was so hot. And, and we discovered that we should never do that again. It was, <laughs> I walked out at midnight, it was 100 degrees. 100 degrees at midnight, this is insane, why are we doing this? But Cody flew one way from Denver to Las Vegas. We picked him up at the airport for the rest of our family vacation, and we're going to have fun. And the first day we have him, uh, we take him to go walk down to the M&M factory and some other stuff, and is down on the Strip. And you know how it is down there, if you've ever been down there. It's the most wretched, horrible place in the United States as far as wickedness and sin. And finally, Cody just stopped us and he said, Mom and Dad, can we just go back to our room? He's just overwhelmed by the, the wickedness of the city. And it's not really, we discovered as well, it's probably not the best place to take your little kids. But we had never done it before and we thought, you know, maybe we could turn lemons into lemonade. <laughs> not, not so. Not enough sugar there. Um, but here he comes into Babylon, and, and in the middle of the city is this towering ziggurat close to the temple of the, the idol that was worshipped in Babylon. His name was Marduk. And, you know, it would have been easy for Daniel and his friends to abandon the faith of their homeland and to embrace this bedazzled city. And I have to tell you, that's why their story is so remarkable, because they didn't do that. Everybody else did. All of the other kids who were taken from their homes in Jerusalem and taken from Judah into Babylon just accepted the culture. 
And there were thousands upon thousands of people who were taken from Jerusalem and from Judah who were in Babylon who became permanent cities of the realm. But for these young men, their heart was back home. Their heart was united still with the God of Israel. But they had a different mindset. So here we have this gifted young man. But there are a lot of gifted young men. And what made him stand out was that he stood for God while using his giftedness. And I think that every Christian parent would like to raise a Daniel. All of us want our kids to grow to be successful adults. Although sometimes even Christians get confused on what success is supposed to look like. Now Daniel would have blown the roof off his SAT score. But he wasn't at the same time a socially awkward, what you might have called nerd when you were in school. Do they still call people that? It's probably, is, that is that a bad thing now? Is that not politically correct? Should I not have said that at church? Uh, I don't even know the terms anymore. You say things now and people look at you like, you can't say that anymore. Don't you know it's 2016? Like, I'm sorry, I didn't know. And get the fresh list of all the words you can't say in our society. But he was socially poised. So poised, in fact, that he was chosen to stand in the king's palace. And on top of those things... He had character and backbone to stand for God. See, giftedness that has no character is a tragedy waiting to happen. You could think of it like a misguided missile. It's powerful, but it's also very dangerous. And Daniel had a guidance system. He had a moral compass that had been impressed upon his life by parents. We could safely guess that his parents modeled an excellent spirit that he had absorbed prior to his being taken from them because it's mentioned in the book how excellent his spirit is, not once, but more than once. Now, lots of Jewish parents took a passage very seriously. And it's a passage that people in Judaism still take seriously today. It's in Deuteronomy 6. And it tells the fathers that they are in charge of their home. And they are in charge of impressing upon their children the word of God. And they're supposed to teach them consistently God's word, diligently, and in their house, and when they go by the way, and when they stand up, and when they're in bed, and wherever they are, they're supposed to put it on the walls of their house, and wear it between their eyes. And they're supposed to teach up their children in the way they should go. Now, it's interesting, though, that Daniel had taken these convictions of his parents, and he had made them his own. He had internalized them. I remember when I was growing up, I went to Christian school uh, from K3 to 12th grade. And it's, I mean, I was, I was under the, the teaching of, of God's word, not only at my house, not only at church, but five days a week. And they, when I was in high school, they had chapel five days a week. And I, man, I thought it was a little overkill, right? And then I went to to Bible college, and I was in it again, five days a week, get in there in chapel, and they're going to preach at you and yell at you and get all the sin out of you. <laughs> it doesn't work, does it? Here, here's the interesting thing about it. You know how many people I went through high school with and went through college with who walked out the door 
and fell straight into the trap of the world and didn't remember anything they were taught. It's like nothing went inside of them. It's like it all just went over the top of them. Kids who grew up in Christian's home, Christian homes, pastor's kids, church staff kids, people who had everything going for them. <coughs> and I began to kind of watch this like, what is going on here? Why is this happening? What's going on? Here's what it is. Even if you have great Christian parents, and even if you're in a wonderful Christian environment, and even if the word of God is impressed on your heart all the time, if you don't internalize that and make the God of heaven your personal God, you're not going to last in a Christian faith. You have to decide for God for yourself. Nobody can do it for you. And there are a lot of people who grew up in Christianity and they almost treat it like it's just a religion that they did when they were a kid and now they've grown out of it and they've gotten past it and now they really know what's going on in the world. Some of the most confused people you've ever met. And uh, Daniel wasn't there. Daniel had purposed in his heart. He had internalized the conviction. And we see in Daniel 1.8 that this decision that he made was not his parents' decision. It was his decision. I'm telling you, that's the hope of every Christian parent, that your child will learn to love God on his or her own, that your child will have a personal relationship with Christ even closer than the one that you have. And it's evident that there was some principled parenting in Daniel's life. But not only evident parenting, there, there was also authentic purity. So we've seen that every parent, I think, would like to raise a Daniel one who stands out from his peers, but also stands up for God and truth. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. So there it is. That's, that's the whole crux of, of this value in our message. Daniel's heart was the breeding ground for his purpose to remain pure. Look back with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 4. I mentioned Deuteronomy 6 a while ago and had a, the lessons and the doctrine that God had given through Moses to the people. But Deuteronomy 4 and verse 9 stands out because it, it's such a unique verse. And unfortunately, a lot of parents in modern times and certainly in the last 20, 30, 40 years have tried to have rules for their kids without any relationship. And rules without relationship just breeds rebellion. It has to be a heart matter. It has to be a personal purity matter. Look at Deuteronomy 4, 9. Only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently. Lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, unless they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life, but teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. Now, this is such a, such a huge principled verse. Growing young people with hearts for God starts with us having hearts for God ourselves. There's a pattern here. If we don't take heed to our own lives, if we don't diligently obey God from our own hearts, we can't expect to embed truth into the souls of our children. Requi requiring rules isn't going to get your kids to authentic purity. 
Relying on your child's giftedness isn't going to get your young person to an authentic heart for God. Much more than giftedness, your child needs guidance. Guidance that begins from your heart for God. That verse says it's got to be yours first. You have to internalize it in you first before you can pass it on. And we all know that kids, they do what you model. They don't do what you say. Right? That's how they grew up. You say, kids, don't ever do this, even though I'm doing it. Don't ever drive a car without a seatbelt. Right? I've heard parents tell kids, don't ever get addicted to these cigarettes, kids. I don't, just don't want you to ever do that. And they just smoke pack after pack after pack because they can't defeat it. And, and you've got parents who just don't internally model what they externally desire. And it's a very difficult thing. And so God says purity, authentic purity, starts in the heart. It starts in the heart of the parent, and it's transferred to the heart of the child. And it, boy, all of us, we get, you know when you get excited? is when you have a kid who's two, three, four years old, and they say, I'm sorry, by themselves. It's just, wow, they're starting to get it. They're starting to understand that when you hurt somebody else, you have to apologize for yourself. Right? There's nothing worse than having to tell a 12-year-old, you need to go apologize. Right? You're supposed to already know this value. And, and we, in our value system, have to start with our own hearts. If you list the values, what you want your kids to have, better make sure you have them yourself. Third part of the message, no politics. No politics. Now, ever since I was a little kid, one of my favorite Bible stories has also always been about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The three Hebrew children, and this is in Daniel chapter 3. So as you go to Daniel 3, you remember the great king, Nebuchadnezzar, decided to make an image of himself. And it wasn't just an image that you could put inside the house. It was 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. It's bigger than Paul Bunyan, right? It's huge. He wanted every province in his empire to worship this idol. And what he was trying to do, he was trying to bring together all of the religions in the kingdom because he had all these kingdoms he had conquered and he's trying to bring them all together into a one world religion and it's basically self-deification which is you all come together and worship me. If you know anything about prophecy, you know this is a picture of what the Antichrist is going to do during the tribulation period. But anyway, he had this magnificent image of gold and he commanded everyone to bow down before it and he even created an incentive program to help folks understand the priority of worshiping at the image. If you did it, you got to live. If not, you get thrown into a fiery furnace. Now, all of this is happening in this dog-eat-dog political world. There's backbiting and gossip and tattling at every turn. Why? Because it's, this was a humanistic empire. This was not guided by God. This was not guarded by God. This was not founded on God. And so every person who's in this political system is doing what they do by human nature. And there are people out there saying this is utopia and it's going to be so good because all human beings are good. And they had never understood anything about God's truth. And so this newly promoted trio of Jewish bureaucrats, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were noticed standing up when everyone else was bowing down. 
and the Chaldean bureaucrats ran to the king. Right? They ran to the king, and they let him know right away. Look at verse 8. Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spake and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. That's what you always said to the king, uh, to make sure that he did not chop your head off. Thou, king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso followeth not down and worship, that he should be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And so Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are brought before the king. He says to them, is it true? Verse 14, do you not serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? And then in verse 15, one of the longest verses in the Bible, he says, I'm going to give you good boys another shot. When you hear the music, you bow down. It's basically what it says. Verse 16, look at this, they're respectful, but they are unwilling to drop their convictions even a little bit. For the sake of climbing the social ladder and moving up in the political system. I love the wording in verse number 16. They said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Don't you like that wording? We're not careful to answer the king in this matter. We are going to worship the one true God. And everybody knows the end of the story. They said, if it be so, God's able to deliver us. And if not, we're still not going to do it. And he tosses them in. And all the guys who threw them in died. They heated the furnace seven times hotter. And then he sees the guy walking in the midst like the son of God. We all know the end of the story. Here's, here's what I want you to get. We can be kind people in 2016. And we certainly should not stir up strife. And we certainly shouldn't argue for no reason whatsoever. But when it comes to defending the faith once delivered to the saints, we don't have to be careful in answering. We can set aside all approval ratings, all approval ratings, all political correctness, and we can stand firmly and say, thus saith the Lord. And the rest is up to God's sovereignty. That's what they said. We do, we're not careful to answer. We know he's able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to back down. And we're not going to say that a lie is truth. And we're not going to fall down and worship at the God of humanism. We're not going to give in to the God of modern tolerance. But boy, there is a God of modern tolerance in our day. Unlike never before. And you're seeing Bill's... Uh, that are going through state houses all across our nation. Now, bills that are trying to protect churches. Protect churches. Can you imagine this? In the United States of America, bills that are written to try to protect churches from having to have venues on their property that they completely disagree with biblically. Bills that are to protect pastors from having to perform ceremonies 
that are against God's word. And we have governors, specifically a governor who just totally gave up and became a Babylonite, Babylonian, this week uh, in Georgia. He said, you know what, we're going to let the 1% of 1% kind of rule this instead of what all the people want. And uh, he gave in. And we have bills in states across uh, the United States this week that will go through state houses that say, you know what, if you were born a male, you go in the boys' bathroom. And if you were born a female, you go in the girls' bathroom. How hard is this? You've been doing it since you were four years old. Figure it out. But we've got bills now. There's a state that wants to give in and say, you know what? We're going to make every public bathroom in our state, whoever wants to go in there can go in there. You know what, Christians? We're going to have to stand. It's going to get darker from here. It's going to get harder from here. We're not going to raise our children into a society like the one we grew up in. They're going to be living in Babylon. But they're going to have to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't grow up in a majority Christian nation. They didn't grow up in, here at this time in their lives. Now, they did before they got brought here. But they weren't in a nation that was founded on the one true God, nation under God. They were in Babylon. And in the midst of all that, they still said, no politics. We're going to stand. We're going to do what God wants us to do. We're not going to back down from God's word just because there are groups of militant reprobates who hate the author of the word of God. We have to stand and do what God's called us to do. You say it's not going to be popular. You're right. It's not going to be popular. But it doesn't really matter if it's popular or not if we're on the Lord's side. If God be for us, who can be against us? And they said, no politics. Now, I want you to see this last one because this is another famous Bible story in Daniel 6. And it's unyielding practice. Unyielding practice. Famous Bible story. By the way, you should get a Bible story book and make sure that your children know the stories of God's word. It is sad in this generation. There are many Christian homes where kids know who Batman and Iron Man are, but they've never heard of David and Daniel. And they come to Sunday school classes in second or third grade and have no idea about Daniel and the lion's den. Another magnificent piece of history. Once again, it's set in motion by a humanistic survival of the fittest political system where tearing somebody else down is supposed to somehow build you up. Darius the Mede is now the king. The empire is massive. We read in Daniel 6, there are 120 princes helping him rule. And above the princes, but below the king, there's three specially appointed presidents. It's interesting that Darius didn't need uh, the people's votes to appoint his presidents. Sounding more like America all the time. But, but there were three presidents. Daniel's the top one. He's second only to the king. He still had the excellent spirit that he had shown throughout his career. And at this point in his life, just to show you how the, the book has tracked so far, Daniel is close to 75 years old. Right? So here's the 14-year-old boy who's grown up in Babylon, and now he's about 75 years old. 
And all of these pagan princes are looking for a way to take Daniel down. You know, it's very difficult for righteous people to last in politics. They either get taken out by the wolves or they compromise and become part of the pack. But these guys couldn't find anything on Daniel. And of course, there was no internet back then where you could just go make stuff up. There's no National Enquirer and no 24-hour news stations that were trying to uh, get ratings. But people were the same. They were humanists at heart. They were sinners back then, just like we are now. Look at verse number 5. Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these geniuses talked the king into making a self-deification decree. If anybody prays to anyone but the king for the next 30 days, they go into the den of lions. Now it seems like the Babylonians were pretty good at this torture thing. Right? At a den of lions, a fiery furnace, waterboarding, kind of all the same thing. But the, the king... Sign the decree. And I love verse 10. What he says. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. And there's no circumstance or force that was going to stop Daniel from living out his faith. Even his position of first president of Babylon. Daniel hadn't compromised to get the position. And he wasn't there going to compromise to keep it. His relationship with God was much more important. It's sad when people who have invested much in their faith, when they give it all up, just to climb one notch in their corporation. I hate to see people sacrifice their character and compromise everything they supposedly hold dear just to get one step ahead in some earthly venture that only lasts for a short time. Friend, I have to ask you this question as we close this morning. What would it take to stop you from standing? What would it take to stop you from living out your faith? A threat? Ridicule? A joke? A memo? A mandate? When I hear from people the reasons why they're no longer faithful to the house of God, I'm truly amazed. So many parents sacrifice the future Christian character of their children completely on the altar of convenience. You know, we just felt like we should do this. Well, Johnny's got soccer, and we've got all this, and we've got this. I'm telling you, we sacrifice the next generation of Christianity on the altar of convenience. Instead of saying, you know what? We're a Christian family, and here's what we're doing. And I don't care what the Davises or the Smiths or the Jones down the street do. This is what we do, because God's our God, and we're going to live for him. We've lost that in our Christianity. Now, I can tell by some of your faces, like, what are you talking about, Pastor? I've never heard of this before. Real Christianity is Christianity that's 24-7, 365, and 366 in leap year. Real Christianity is when you go on vacation and you still go to church and your kids say, why are we going to church? Because we go to church. 
say, but dad, we're on vacation. I don't care if we're on vacation. We go to the house of God and we worship. We've lost that in our Christian society. And I think it happened from the product of people who grew up in the 60s and they didn't want to be too hard on their kids. And these baby boomers said, you know what? We're just going to let our kids do what they want. And now those kids are adults and they have their own kids and they have kids who don't even know God. They don't know any Bible stories. They're unfamiliar with being faithful to God's house. And Daniel said, I'm not going to sacrifice the future on the altar of the immediate. He wasn't going to back away from anyone or anything, even if it meant being dropped into a stable of hungry lions. I love this story because Daniel's reputation of faith was so great that even the king who had to throw him in the den of lions believed that Daniel's God would deliver him. Look what it says down here. If you come down to verse number 16. Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him in the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, so he kind of whispered as he's dropping into the cage, Thy God whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. And then they put a stone on top of the Daniel, on top of the lion's den. And the king paces all night. And he comes back in the morning and removes the stone. Daniel, was your God able to deliver you? Check that, king. My God's the real God. He's the one true God. He's worth it. He is worth standing. He is worth the purpose toward purity. That's what we begin with. Now, as we go into the series, really deeper into Daniel's life and deeper into some of the giftedness that he had. But it really starts with this inner desire, this inner purpose. And I hope we'll grab that as we leave this place today. Let's bow in prayer.